Welcome to the How I Became podcast, all about entrepreneurship. Daniel, welcome to the podcast, How I Became. I am so excited to jump into this with you, and I'm so, so appreciative that you are giving us uh, a bit of your time. I know you're extremely busy, but welcome. Thank you. And I'll hand it off to you, first off, to just introduce yourself, share a little bit of who you are and your role in the world of entrepreneurship. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm Daniel, founder, CEO of Coho. Been building this business for the last eight years now, which is wild to say, coming up on a, on a decade. We are sort of leading Challenger Bank, which just basically means that we give folks a great way to spend and save and build credit history and, and borrow and do a bunch of things that folks otherwise would find maybe a little too complicated. And, and so we are Consumer-facing fintech, we're at scale. We have a couple hundred folks working at Coho. We've raised a little north of 300 million on a, a meaningful upward trajectory at this point. Lots of stuff to figure out as a company. And before that, I was a co-founder in the wind energy company out of university, which we built and were fortunate enough to sell. And so we you know, sold that company back in, I don't know, maybe a decade ago now or 15 years ago. And uh, also did an e-commerce logistics company in between which was in the group buying kind of heyday, no more rack and Groupon and that kind of stuff and ended up finding out that I hated it. And so I uh, shut down that business about a year and a half after we started. So that's me. Amazing. And what was the order of you filming the different businesses? So the first one was a, the wind energy company was in university that would start as a class project in university. And then the second one was the e-commerce company. And then obviously Coho is the, the third and most recent. And I asked because those are, when I looked into the companies and, and obviously, as you shared, they're big problems in all of these companies that you were solving. And I find that usually people have a bit of a passion for the company they're getting into. They realize that there's this big problem and then they start to solve it. But how do you navigate what challenges you want to solve? You are solving big problems with the businesses you started. Yeah, I think so th there's probably two observations. And, and the first one, like the this wind energy company we stumbled into in the sense that it started as like $100,000 private wind turbines that we were selling to farmers. And then through that, we ended up finding an opportunity to build industrial scale wind farms. And that's what ended up ultimately creating all the value and getting acquired. But like the two things that I would drive home are like one, if you talk to people in this space, particularly, I think people with like humility or self-awareness, they recognize that like luck isn't a, a huge factor in why companies succeed or fail. The person who starts a billion dollar company can't possibly be a thousand times smarter than the person who sells a million dollar company, right? Like it just doesn't work like that. And so if you do that, then the thing that I was kind of lucky to stumble upon is like, okay, well, the things that I can control about this are like, am I proud of the work? And do I care about the people that I'm doing it with? And like, we might succeed or fail for any number of reasons, but you can, you have perfect control over those two variables. And so with the wind energy company, it was like, it might work, it might not, but I'm probably not going to regret the time that I tried to do something useful with in wind energy. And then, you know, the, the counter example was the e-commerce site, which is, you know, we grossed 300 grand in the first year and I hated it because you just felt like all the stuff that you were selling was going to end up in a landfill and so that didn't seem like an interesting use of time. And so look, that, that's one thing. And then the second thing is the the idea that these big industries are somehow impenetrable and like well run is just could not be further from the truth. Like the, the fact that things are like big and entrenched 
from an outsider looks imposing, but the closer you get to these things, there's like cracks in the seam everywhere. And so I don't think that it was like a master plan, but those would be like two learnings, which came through kind of just putting myself in a position where I just wanted to be proud of the work. That's amazing. And it's a good point that the closer you get, the more cracks you see. And I think especially with traditional businesses where they've been doing things for a hundred years over, they haven't really changed the way that they are doing business while the whole world around them has changed. So that probably unlocks a bit of opportunity. You know, sharing a little bit about what Coho is and what a, a neobank is and all of this, but also how you kind of unlock the growth there. Yeah. So it's the growth that's come in stages. And so originally I started this business because I grew up to a single mom and she worked very hard and she drove buses and cleaned houses and we're very fortunate to have like a middle-class life in Canada, but that was on the back of her hard work. And after selling wind energy company and, and coming into capital and just like a lot of folks had no financial education and was like, what do people do with money? And through that kind of recognize that like, oh, the many of the incentives if not all of the incentives in financial products, particularly in Canada, are backwards and serving the existing interests except at the expense of users and Canadians. And what I mean by that is like, it is an objective fact that if folks just pick the right financial product, they will retire with like 30 to 50% more wealth. And if you wash that through, then whatever version of agency or self-actualization you have as an individual, it is very difficult to do that if you're financially unstable. And I think that there's like big chunks of financial stability, which are being eroded by the wrong financial products. And so this was like personal for me because I went and then I looked at my mom's portfolio and she was, had worked so hard and she was in all of these things that were going to erode 30 to 50% of her retirement. And that felt very unfair and like, silly, frankly. And so that was kind of one experience. And then the other experience was I asked 10 of my friends for the last three months of bank statements. My brother gave me his and he had paid $85 in bank fees in three months and, and he didn't know it. And so like, that's my family members. And one of them was like, you know, and so they're both getting ripped off, I think. And so the idea with Coho was like, can you flip this incentive structure such that you build a valuable business precisely because it's so aligned with the long-term interests of your users rather than at the expense of the long-term interests of your users. And if you think about bringing this back to your prior point, it's like, if you work in a credit card department in a bank, you have a quarterly earnings call and they're going to ask you like, how'd you make more money? And the only ways you make more money are you sell more credit card debt or more credit card fees. Or if you work in an investment, if you work in the investment department, like they make 80% of their revenue from fees, not investment returns. Yeah. And so all of these things like wash through to like a really backwards structure, which makes it way harder for folks to get ahead. And so with Coho, it started with just a very simple observation that like, hey, we can build a bank account around a prepaid card that walks, talks, and looks like a debit card. But because of something called interchange, we are able to like give folks cash back, not charge fees, and they could use it outside the country. And so for the 30 or 40% of folks who were using debit, that was a better product by every metric. And then from there, we got into it's like really hard to build credit in this country. And like, you have to go get a credit card, which is this enormously, enormously expensive debt vehicle. And that seems really backwards too. And so we built something called Credit Builder, which now more than a hundred thousand folks have like built and improved their credit history with. Or like borrowing is way more expensive than it needs to be. And there's a bunch of reasons why banks are underwrite, bad at underwriting big chunks of the population. And so we've now lent 
know, probably a hundred plus million dollars. And we've never put anybody, we've never sent anybody to collections. We've never had anybody go into a debt spiral or like nobody's ever owed us more than $25. And so there's just like fundamental ways that you can kind of restructure these products that I think are, are much more useful. And so what Coho looks like today is there's an account. You can get up to a four and a half percent savings rate on that account. It's not two separate accounts. You can build your credit history. You can borrow cheaply. We're starting to like crank on building wealth and, and helping folks kind of like, once you have your financial foundation, what comes next? And we're kind of on that journey now. Um, that's us. It's such a like gives you warmth for humanity type of business and hearing you share all of those things because it's not, I mean, even myself and continuing to try to navigate building financial wealth for not just today, but in the future and seeing how that impacts uh, so many people. If you don't set yourself up correctly, younger generation, like I see some of them making decisions that you're just like, yikes. And then on the other side, you have so many newcomers that I think, especially on the credit side, can get so much value from a company like Coho, where it is so incredibly difficult to get yourself set up, even if you come from being successful somewhere else that you're coming to Canada. It's just, you hear that story so often. It's interesting that there's one, many different products that you're supporting Canadians with, but also so many different target audiences within that. At least that's what I saw when I was digging into it is and I'll put that back on you, but is there a target audience that's in Canadians or a group that you focus on more than others or someone that you had in your mind as you started to build it? Yeah, there's really like two use cases and, and, and you're clicking on something big, right? Which is everybody in Canada. And this is a wonderful thing about Canada, but everybody in Canada has a bank account. And so when you say like you're offering banking services, that's an enormous variance in use cases for what a 22-year-old needs versus a 45-year-old versus someone who's a fisherman on Nova Scotia. Like these things are all different. And so yeah, look, the two areas that where we think we can add the most value, the first one is what we call like real adults. And that's, there's probably a better way to frame it, but the average user of Coho is a little north of 30 years old. They're about an average income for the country of Canada. And these are folks who are like, when you're 22, you're not really thinking about these things. You don't really care. You don't understand the power of compounding. You don't, you know, and, and when you're like 50, you've got a mortgage and four lines of credit and you're so entrenched that your switching cost is so high. And so what we're looking for are the folks that are like becoming adults financially, which means they hopefully just have like a rent check and a paycheck and a few bills to pay, but they're going to, but they're in the process of building their financial story, right? They might get a house or a down payment or whatever those things are. And those are the folks who are actually thinking conscientiously and have a way higher perceived value in what we do than what the banks do. And then the second case, which you alluded to is just immigrants. It's really hard as an immigrant. You can have a perfect credit history in India and with the H1s and like the H1 stuff that's happening between the visas, like these folks are coming to Canada as very affluent people. And it's a very disjointed experience for folks. So we're not great there yet, honestly. Like we have to make it easier for folks to get funds from outside of the country into Coho. But the credit builder and the cover and a lot of these products that we have are, are just like right down the fairway for a lot of these use cases. Do you find that some of your products like credit builder are better acquis like acquisition tools or growth tools for the business versus value adds for current customers? Like, is there a kind of a relationship between some of the different products? I mean, hopefully it's, it's always going to be both. It should always be both the, but yeah, I mean, I think like building credit history is such an, and like 40% of folks in this country have a sub 700 credit score, right? There, there's like one myth that 
you know, we're trying to unwind here, but when we talk about like the paycheck to paycheck folks, which we really think we can serve or building credit history, there's a myth that this person is like $30,000 a year in income. There's a ton of people in this country making 200 grand living paycheck to paycheck or with a 600 credit score or whatever. And like people don't talk about it and I can see like your relief and recognition at that, but it's like a really common experience. So the, like those are the folks that, that we try and target. And so, yeah, like credit building is absolutely a growth driver and 35% of people when they sign up within the first month get credit builder. And it's definitely been a huge part of our uh, progress to date, but it's also not just for like folks making 30K a year. Yeah. And there's those folks on there too, obviously. Yeah. And as you're building all these different elements and and we talked quickly before we jumped on to the recording about being exhausted and like getting to fried eggs but you also have like a passion about what you're doing i'm curious you have the story of what's driven you to, to get here today but what continues to motivate you going forward and keeping the ball rolling because it it's like you're doing hard work and i'm sure you're faced with several challenges do what you do yeah Look, I mean, I think a couple things like, yeah, it's hard, but it would be so much harder to sit on the sidelines. And there is just like a blessing and, a, and there's something very fortunate about the chance to be in this position, you know? And like one of the things that I say when folks join Coho, and I used to be bashful about this, and now I'm just like, look, this is what I believe. And you should not believe this, but you should go pressure test and see if you believe it, which is we're well-funded. I believe we're the market leader. And if we do our job, we can like shape a generation of financial outcomes. Now, like maybe we're right and maybe we're wrong, but like that seems like a worthwhile thing to try and be right about. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And, you know, we'll live with that. Right. But so, and I, and so if you watch that through, most folks get, never get a chance to have those kind of impacts in their career. If you're lucky, you get one, maybe two. And so, my push to folks is like, just go pressure test that and see if you think it's true. And if it's true, then like come here and do the best work of your career. And if it's not, then like you should go find a place that it's true because you're going to get out competed by people who, for whom that is true, you know? So I think like the mission is, is certainly central and we share user stories a lot and we've got a lot of powerful anecdotes that users are kind enough to share with us, which is motivating. And then the other part that's really motivating is just the team. It tends to be self-reinforcing when you get a bunch of people who are like-minded around this kind of stuff. We call it the Coho Collective, but it's just a bunch of like smart, warm, humble, capable folks who honestly, sometimes I'm like, am I crazy? Is this ever going to work? But then I'm like, no, there's no way this many smart people would work here if it was a bad idea. <laughs> so yeah. And that, you're a uh, big growing team. Yeah. How, and how are you building that team? Like, can we talk a little bit about actually building, building this business and getting to a place where you have what, like over 350 employees? Yeah, it's about 300, 300. How are you building it? What are some of the like key elements that you, or key, key frameworks that you're using as you're growing the business? Yeah. So it, we click on a couple things. Like there's directionally the things that I look for are like, I actually think warmth is like a deeply underrated human quality and is really important, not just in terms of like, we want to be around warmth, but it actually facilitates communication and high performance and hard questions. And like warmth is a precursor to so many important things in a company. So I really like warmth. I really like horsepower. Like you, you need to be intellectually curious, hungry, switched on. And that's just something that you can detect in people. And then there's actually like two anti things. I'm very anti cynicism. I think that cynicism kills companies. I think it's intellectually lazy. I think it's very easy and 
looks like intelligence, but is exactly just the opposite. It's a bunch of people who are kneecapping their own careers. So I think cynicism is just a really should be avoided at all costs. And the same thing with ego, like a lot of bad decision gets made or bad incentives are functions of like protecting people's ego. And we don't do any of this stuff perfectly, by the way, but directionally, this is what we try and do. And so those are kind of like two values that are for and against. And then at a company level, look, we do really try and walk the walk on values, not because we think it's like cool to talk about values, but because I think if we build a lookalike product to RBC and we have 300 employees and RBC has 120,000 of them and there's five RBCs, like we're just going to fucking lose. So like if you actually want to win, you have to inoculate your company against short-term trade-offs that are not in users' interest. And the best way to inoculate your company is through values. And you get a bunch of downstream talent, better people and all that kind of stuff because people want to work at a c- company in a culture where they feel like that's real. So look, yeah, those are the two things. And then we do try and be a really transparent company. We've got burned by it before. We'll get burned by it again. But like we share board materials with the whole company. We, I have like a CEO AMA that I do every month. There's a weekly email that goes out to the company. Uh, I used to write all of those and now it kind of rotates through the leadership team. And then on the other side of all that stuff is like, we don't have any anonymous feedback at this company. If you want to like put your hand in the ring or ask a question and you want to be a professional, then that also comes with professional responsibility, which is for you to like be a professional and say, I'm concerned about X or what about Y, but anonymous feedback is just the road to hell for company cultures and cynicism and all that kind of stuff. I agree. It uh, builds like it definitely, you have to think a little bit more if you have to put your name behind being critical or having radical transparency, but it's so important. Yeah. And I just think just statistically, if we're going to like, if you have a 300 person company, you're all, you're going to run into disgruntled folks you're going to run into maybe even bad actors. And like, why would you empower these folks to like distort your company's culture? And you can ask any question you want. Like you can ask, I prefer hard hitting questions, but you got to put your name on it. That's part of what the professional, I want to be professional adult. Like that goes both ways, right? Yeah. I love that you guys do that because it's, you do get, I think it might minimize a vocal minority when you do that because people feel a little bit more thoughtful if they're going to put you know, a negative or a maybe not cynical, but whatever the question is forward. But I, I think that's a great thing to implement. It's such a good framework. And as someone else is building a company, maybe to look to some of these tools or ways of working that you're implementing. Did you know that you wanted to run the company like this? Or did you think about these things when you were at a hundred person company, like 200 person company? At what point did having these values start to become important? I think it's always been probably the DNA of the company. You have such a durable team if people are here for the right reasons. And so when shit gets hard, like we had this financial crisis or whatever you want to call it since 2021 and the ability to stand up in front of the team and be like, look, we have 2040 goals in this company. So this isn't even the last one of these we're going to run into. We're probably going to run to two or three more cycles just like this before we're done. And it just grounds everything, I think, in a way that is like much more resilient. But no, but, you know, in terms of the different things that, that we do here, no, I think they're all offshoots of this belief upstream, which is probably you can draw a straight line all the way back to like just doing work you're proud of, you know? And if I'm honest, I would say 
a lot of this stemmed from like my own insecurities as a leader where I was like, I don't know that I would want to work for me. We better figure out like a way to make this company <laughs> better and exciting and, a, you know, useful. And I think that all of these things though are couched in the idea, not in just feeling good about them, but in that you will build a better performing company and that that will return more capital to me and to employees and to shareholders and everybody else. Like it, it is not unique to Coho, but it's rare that I think how intertwined the mission and the shareholder returns are. Maybe I'll ask a bit about Coho 50 because it kind of falls within this topic a little bit. Um, if you want to uh, share a bit of what that is and why it's important to the business. Yeah. So we do employee engagement scores here. It's one of like the five most important metrics in this company is like what kind of employee experience are folks having? Because the upper bound of Coho will be a function of the careers that people have here and the quality and the talent that we can attract. But then you go to these like meetings around this and you're like, okay, our regrettable attrition was X and our non-regret attrition was Y and our employee, but it's, those are like very peanut buttery metrics, right? And you can't, they're very difficult to action. And it's, you know, it might be that like a specific department had a specific problem. And because of that, these metrics moved or whatever. And so what, that was like one thing that was frustrating. And then the other part of this is like, which is well known is that the impact of employees is not equally distributed. And so it's like you have a Pareto distribution usually where 20% of the folks are driving 80% of the impact. And so for us, we just sat down and we said, okay, who are the 50 most important seats? Not the best people. What are the 50 most important seats in this company? And then we put all those people on a chart and then we nine box them. And nine box is a talent matrix, which is like, what's your potential and what's your impact? With the idea being, instead of trying to figure out how to give 250 or 300 people a great employee experience, why don't we build like 50 awesome managers? And then those folks will naturally give the remaining 80% of the company a great employee experience because people, you know, it's well known, it's an adage, people don't leave companies, they leave managers, right? And so can you build like this incredible nucleus of 50 people where we have a very focused sense of like, this is where we can spend our time when we're talking about employee engagement. And so if you have somebody who is in the top right on this 50, you got to figure out how to give that person more scope. And you get to have like, instead of having like very vague hand wavy conversations, there ends up being like seven to 10 conversations every quarter where this person is crushing it and needs more scope, or this person is really important and is a flight risk. And like, what's our succession plan? Or, Hey, this person's been an underperformer two quarters in a row. We're letting down the team below them by the fact that this person's still here and they haven't turned it around. And so you just get to have like much more structured pointed these are the seven to 10 folks that we need to focus on this quarter. And then you just do that quarter over quarter. And then hopefully the thesis is those 50 folks will give the remaining 80% of the company a great experience. I've never heard of it before, but I love that as a tool to help also focus you because you can't manage and make sure 300 people plus and growing are all happy and doing their best work. So being able to zone in. How did you, like, was there a framework on assessing what those 50 roles are? And do you expect as the company grows to have a ratio of, of seat growing as well? Yeah, I mean, I think when, so we're not dogmatic. Like the, the idea is in the spirit of the Pareto distribution. So you probably want 20% of the company represented. It actually, at some point it was up to 54. Just found out today it's at 41 so like, I don't really care whether, you know, about that stuff. I'm, I more care about 
And so what we did is we all just sat down and there's 16 folks who lead departments at Coho. So those 16 are like an easy in. And then we talk about like, who are the next 30 people, 36 people who are most impactful or the you know, people seats that are most impactful. And we kind of like batted around and eventually ended up with a list of 54 and have since kind of shaved it down. And so. And you make the differentiation of like people versus seats. Why differentiate that? Like what if you do have an outstanding person, but they're not in one of those seats, but they are having like a really amazing impact. Yeah. So then you would ha- want to have a conversation with that person and be like, how do we get you more impact? Cause you're a stud, Kelly, you're killing it. But like, you're over here in no woman's land running a department of two on stuff like, but you're like, you're crushing, you know? And so right. there is like, this is where you want to be if you want to have an impact in the company. And so you should try and work your way into one of those seats. Now, not everybody wants to do that, right? There's lots of engineers who kind of fork off into like, oh, I want to be an IC versus I want to be a people manager. And, and that's fine. And this is not like a perfect metric and you need ways to think about the IC engineers who want to go that, but like it is orders of magnitude more useful than like a generalized engagement score survey, I think. Yeah, definitely. Because it also gives you that focus on who do you actually want to invest your time on because there's a million things that I'm sure you can invest your time on. Yeah, and if you just think about the, when somebody works at a company, they're putting a lot of, like it's really they're putting a lot of their time and trust and everything. And so, you know, I want to hold managers accountable to the idea that like, if you have an underperformer on your team, what standard of care do we owe the people that are maybe two degrees below you in the org chart? And like, if you have an underperformer two quarters in a row, which happens all the time, you're letting those folks down. Um, and so that like the good heuristic I use is like, who would, what standard of care would you want to, would you owe yourself when you are early in your career? You know, and if you're, and it just gives it like fewer places for people to hide, frankly, or on the other side, like we get to celebrate more, but it's so hard to look at an org chart of 250 people and understand where you need to lean in. Yeah. And I, I think being a leader on the people side is one huge challenge. And when you're starting the business, you're very focused on the problem. And now you are a leader of, of so many people. How have you ensured that the leader you are at? a five-person team versus today has evolved and that you you mentioned that you want to continue to be a good leader. And I assume that that is a goal of yours. So what do you focus on to, to do that? You want to make sure you're the right type of leader at different stages. Yeah. It's a hard job for everybody, not from, but everybody remembers the first time they managed and how weird that is. And so it's, it's a very hard job. Here's, here's a few things that I find useful. I remember there's a general in the U S military and I love the way that he thinks about this, which is, and I think his name is General Mattis. And he talks about this and he says, look, when I go and learn lessons the hard way, like people die, like it is crazy borderline, I'm massively paraphrasing, but it's crazy borderline sociopathic that I wouldn't go read everything I can about a given problem set and that I would be willing to learn lessons the hard way when people's lives are on the line. Now, obviously that's not business but it is people's career and it's people's financial livelihood. And like those things matter and it's investor capital and like, there's an enormous amount of trust that goes into this. And so you really do have to think about learning as part of your job. Like the, and, and it's hard to learn as a CEO for a bunch of reasons. But, and so I think, but like that recognition that like learning is absolutely part of your job 
is important to understand. And if you actually price this in, I remember an investor said to me once, and I was like four years in, and he's like, hey, you're not Steve, or you're not Tim Cook. And I was like, oh yeah, Tim Cook's had 30 decades, or like three decades of CEO experience. Like, why would I think I would even be a good CEO? You know, I've been doing this for eight years. I'm probably objectively like an adequate CEO. Just because it, because you have to be, because there's people who do this for 30 years or 40 years right. and like the learning curve is that steep, you know? And so once you recognize that you're probably bad at it and it's your job to learn really quickly, you're like 90% of the way there, right? And then the things that I found useful within that, I think there's a couple things, coaching, therapy, whatever those things are, but like self-awareness is I think a big part of a CEO's job because you just carry such a big stick that if you don't figure out how to manage those things well, not that I do all the time, but you will create distortions within your company and within your leadership team. And so the self-awareness that comes from those things and the self-awareness that comes from a forced check-in once an hour to like talk about what's happening in your life in therapy or talk about whatever it is you're talking about in coaching is like a really important job because it's so easy to not to punt that stuff aside and not realize how it shows up in your life. And then the second thing is I'm very clear with my team that I'm like a multi-altitude CEO and I will go around and I'll click in on reports and I'll go and like, I will go deep. Yeah. And I think you should go deep. I think it's a myth that people should get out of the weeds, but you have to create the system in which you can get feedback when your hit rate sucks. And so like, if I'm going around and creating a bunch of noise and thrash and because I'm like not looking in the right place. You need your team to be empowered to tell you that you're being an idiot and that you're like wasting a bunch of time and scaring a bunch of people and creating thrash, you know, because when you go look around and play at different altitudes, every now and then you'll find something you'd be like, I'm so glad I did that. And my intuition was right. And, but you very rarely get the opposite signal, which is like, this is dumb. You're wasting time. You're distracting the team. And so you actually have to like front load and give people the permission to be like, I got one of these yesterday where it's like, we call it bad ping counter. And if I break more than five bad pings in a quarter, I have to buy this person a beer. So it's so like, you know, you get, and it helps though. Like, cause it, yeah. it, it is part of this whole like reinforcing system of learning. Right. And it sounds also that there's like a camaraderie that you have with the team as well to give them the freedom to kind of push back or have honest conversation. Like you have to have a, a bit of that. Yeah. You have to have like this kind of warmth and psychological safety yeah. and, but it's hard. One of the one of the learnings for me is like a CEO carries a stick no matter what. And I wish it wasn't true because sometimes I just want to show up and sit there and listen. But you're always a CEO and I get it. Are there things that you miss from early days of being a CEO or, or growing the company? Yeah. Yeah. I think that I'm more naturally an early stage CEO than I am a later stage CEO. Like an early stage CEO, because a lot of my intuitions are around building and doing the work and that kind of stuff. And eventually that really just doesn't serve you well as 250 people or whatever. And like much more of my job now is a repetition and vision and context setting and like things that don't really feel like work, but I get are like super important. Yeah. Like I really miss the days of 13 and 15 and 20 people. And yeah, but like, look, I mean, I, that, I'm just saying, but that being said, when this was always the plan and we're on track and at some point, I probably don't think we ever need to grow the headcount around four, over 400 in this company, but you know, we're going to at some point continue to grow and expand and that's a job. So there's always things that you're going to miss, I think, at each stage, but there's also things you're probably going to look forward to and be excited as a leader or as the company. What are you looking forward to as you continue to grow and make a difference for Canadians or 
make a difference, even just for your team. Like that's impactful and that has a lot of effect downwards as well. I think the the funnest part about this is the talent that you get to attract at a later stage. Like it was really hard. It was, you know, in the early days is like a pirate ship where you're taking like whoever will believe in your little pirate ship dream, you know, and like that, that counted for a lot and you get a bunch of like wonderful people, but as you get later scaled, you get people who just have so much experience and horsepower and capacity and talent. And it really is awesome and the ability to share the burden, particularly because I'm like a solo founder. And once you have real veterans around you who've been through it before, it gets a lot easier in that respect, you know? So that would be the thing that I will continue to look forward to. And I'm sure the team will continue to get better. And that, that and then obviously the, the mission itself and eventually, you know, changing a generation of financial outcomes, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, that is a, a mission and a half, like it, doing that and already starting uh, to see that impact. I mean, I was watching some YouTube videos and people telling their stories and it's really special to see what a company that's not that old do for people who had, you know, a lot of fear in what their financial future would look like. Yeah. Thank you. You talked a little bit about like an investor giving you some advice and I think that's a big element of what getting financing can or, or, or money can do for you. But I'm curious how you made the decision of what type of financing you want, how you want to grow the business, what, how to get capital. I actually think way too many people raise venture capital. And I think that it is not the right tool for big chunks of folks, but it sounds there was no fun. way I was going to boot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, it's fun and it's shiny and all that kind of stuff. And I was shocked to find myself running like a high burn venture capital growth type style company. But, you know, I wasn't going to bootstrap a bank, nor was it, are you going to get like private, you know, and so it was the right asset class for us, for sure. But I, I think for a lot of folks, it's not. And so I would say a few things. For a lot of folks, it's not. I think the biggest thing that folks need to figure out is what kind of business they want to build. Yeah. I also think that people misprice this in the sense that like, it's not like you take 2 million bucks in a seed investor and all of a sudden all options are out the window. There's a few points that actually really matter here. And those points are when you lose share control or when you lose burn control. So like an investor, and I'm not advocating people do this, but an investor can own 49% of your company. And as long as you have share control and board control, the worst thing that they can do is be a pissed off investor, yeah. you know, and it sucks and you should like set expectations. I'm not saying people do that, but I'm saying because you raised $2 million, it doesn't mean that you can't pivot your business. You just have to go have a hard conversation with your investor and figure out a way to like make them whole if you decide that you don't want to build a venture back business. But so many of these founders are like on a venture back track because they've raised venture capital, but they actually have a lot more optionality than I think that they do. So it's not really the question you asked, but it is a bugbear of mine. So. No, I think it's, I, I mean, that's where I was going with it anyways. I think as people listen and even when I had my own business, it was like, oh, VC sounds so exciting. And then you dig into it and you realize, okay, there's actually a very narrow scope of businesses that will hit the marks that BC is interested in or that, you know, has to be beneficial on both ends. So you, you kind of answered the question that I was getting at anyways. I would say more so anecdotally, yeah. I would say when people talk about like the exits and sold this company for 400 or 700 or 80 or whatever, more than half of those are not good outcomes for the founding team. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's getting better with press stacks and we can talk about the mechanics and all that kind of stuff. But like, 
it is a very narrow band of outcomes, even within VC, once you're VC fundable, where you are made, where you get those kinds of shiny returns as a founder. Interesting. So it's perhaps an exit strategy to exit the business, but not going to be the most uh, financially viable for the people who initially started the company. All the time. Yeah. Like, let's just, we'll just do some quick math. Let's just say that you raised $20 million on an $80 million valuation, right? So the company's worth a hundred million. Now in the heyday of 2021, a lot of these folks were raising at 50, 60, 80, a hundred times ARR, right? So let's just say that they raised at 80 times ARR. So now they're doing a million dollars. They have an $80 million business. They've raised 20 million bucks. Valuations are now, and if they don't grow, you know, if they, if you double revenue next year, you're a $2 million business, but like objectively on today's value, that's a 12 to $14 million business, depending on your margins. Right. So you can double and you're still of that 20 million. Like you don't see a dime until you clear your 20 million in pref stack. Right. And so that's, if you doubled your revenue from one to two, let alone if you grew at 30 or 40%. And so these founders need to go and have hard conversations with their board members and be like, we're under a pref stack. I'm like, I'm not incentivized to keep going here. So we either need to recap this business or I'm going to walk because it's not worth my opportunity cost. And hopefully the investors like good partners will figure this out. They understand the mechanics. They played the game just like we did, but uh, that's like actually what ha is happening behind the scenes in a lot of these businesses. And do you not on the consumer side of your business, but as you're growing your business, are there any concerns that you're facing or like considering as you grow? Yeah, I mean, that a lot of them. Uh, look, I'm fortunate that we don't, we're unlikely to have that problem okay. and we'll announce a funding round soon, but okay. we never raised it 80 times 100, 80, 100 times okay. revenue. So like, you know, we're still growing really quickly, objectively, yeah. but we also don't have the hurdle rate to clear. But look, yeah, I mean, so for us, the ways that you drive revenue are like, are you creating more users? Are you better monetizing those users? Are you making more efficient revenue off of those users? And so like you sometimes get one or two of those things to work at the same time, but you're rarely getting all three to work at the same time, you know? Yeah. And that's where we are today. We have like two of those three engines that are working and one is not. And then that you got to figure out the revenue durability of that kind of growth curve. And, you know, we're pretty, we're pretty data driven and cohort driven around here and stuff. So I feel good about it, but yeah, like there, there's always, yeah, there's always concern. stuff that's working and stuff that isn't. Getting to like the last a chunk of questions. And I think it might be a good time to ask this. I heard a quote by you that embrace the suck. So I'm curious if you can elaborate on what that means and how you embrace the suck. So like, I think, so I think that Coho is a hard business to run, yeah. but I think every hard business to run. Like I, I walk around Vancouver all the time and I see sushi restaurants and I'm like, Coho is hard, but it's not as hard as being the 40,000th sushi restaurant in Vancouver, yeah. right? And so all of these things are hard. And there's a different thing about if you're going to embrace the hard things, you may as well do it for something with like way more upside. And that's a different conversation. But embrace the suck is about like, it is one thing to have like, to have these things be hard. It's another thing to have the perceived identity that yours is the only business that is hard or that it's somehow unnatural that it's hard. Right. And so I think a lot of founders and a lot of folks have expectations that like my company is the only one that's like really hard and it's just not true. And when you have a mismanaged expectation gap that it's somehow not supposed to be hard, I think it makes it harder. And whereas if you're just like, 
we always knew that this was going to be hard. And the only game plan is to just keep swimming. I actually think you build a much, it's like way more fun and it feels more like an adventure and less like a slog, you know? And so, yeah, Embrace the Suck is just like, it's never, was never meant to be easy. And there's a female swimmer who talks about this. I can't remember her name, but she's like, she calls it like the rule of thirds where it's like, if one third of your days suck, one are okay, one third are okay. And one third are like good to great. You're in the right ballpark. Yeah. You know, you're doing something right. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Last uh, couple questions. So as founders get into entrepreneurship and explore or are growing their business, I think they are told a lot of things. So curious about myth that founders, that you hear founders believing that you wanted to yeah. So there's a lot. Uh, look, the, the the first one is like, I don't really think you. So you could take and follow your investor's advice to a T mm -hmm. and do everything that they said. And if you fail, it's not like the investor is putting up their hand and being like, whoops, that's on me. Like you're the founder, yeah. you're the CEO and it's on you. And until you recognize that no matter what happens, you're holding the bag. I don't think you're a real founder. I don't think you're a real CEO. Yeah. You're like, you're an employee. And I see a lot of folks who are deferential to investors and I was for a time. So this is not, this is like my own journey, but, and you think that these folks have like some unique insight, right? And I think it's just like fundamentally wrong. And so the irony is, of course, is that most great investors actually want you to be a little bit prickly and want you to like not be deferential to them because it means that you're not actually high conviction as a CEO and what you want to do. And so I think the founders get this signal backwards where you have to kind of strike this balance. You want to be humble. You want to be open to those things, but ultimately it's your call and you're going to be holding the bag. The, in my experience, investors are wonderful at problem identification and terrible at solutioning. And so they're often very good because they have such a pattern match of being like, Hey, this product velocity is slow here. And then they'll say, and I think you should do X about it. And they're almost always right that product velocity is slow. They're almost always wrong that X is the right solution, you know? And so I just think like once founders start to see those things and we all inevitably learn those lessons because we get enough data points along the way, but the sooner founders can learn that lesson, I think the faster the learning curve is. It's interesting. It's like figuring out, listening to the investor and knowing what to action against and what to say, okay, I'll like figure this part out on my own, but you've helped me unlock that there's something for me to then look into. Totally. It's like, Hey, I think you're right about X. I'm going to do Y. And here's the reason I think about this differently. Yeah. And by the way, if they're a good investor, like one of my favorite investors, what he said to me when he gives me advice, which I love the way that he frames it, he goes, you know, I think you should do Y, but if I'm wrong, I'll never say I told you so. And it's just like, because you, anybody knows that this shit's hard yeah. and you should reserve the possibility that you're wrong. And I also have investors who have definitely said, I told you so, <laughs> you know? So like, I think, yeah, real investors will have the humility to know that these are hard problems with like, and you will spend a hundred times more time in your company and have a thousand more data points than they will. And that's how the system works. And they will price that into their confidence when they're giving you direction. Yeah. That's a really strong one. I think from like day one of starting your business and thinking, you know, so excited about what the future looks like and you think about investors to actually having conversations with investors it's important advice to keep in mind and sorry per particularly because like if you are very malleable you are by definition kind of like a peanut buttery founder right and these folks are looking for outliers yeah. 
because their 10 or 20% of companies are going to drive all their returns. So it is like the prickly folks or the high conviction folks or the, the, the that actually drive the returns. And so investors are actually looking for this and you have to do it with some level of EQ and making them feel heard and their advice is sometimes good and everything else. But yeah, it's just a, it's a thing that I think founders are late to learn. I love it. Um, and speaking of founders learning and navigating how to be a really amazing founder, one thing I believe in is getting involved in a startup community is so important having that network. Do you have some recommendations on how to get involved into a startup community or how to kind of network with other entrepreneurs and other people in the space? Yeah, I, I tend to think of these things as like great filters. And if you build something, you are ahead of 90% of the folks who show up to those fucking nightmarish standard startup community networking things, right? And Because what you actually like, you don't want to build some like vast collection of business cards. You want to build a deep hustle and alignment with a small group of folks when you're starting your company, yeah. two, three, four, five people. That's all it takes. And so... When you show up with builders, builders have a gravity and builders recognize other builders and builders want to be near other builders. And nobody who's like really strong wants to be around a bunch of people talking about their startup. You know what I mean? And so it's just like, if you actually just put up like, so what that looks like is, is put up the website, make your first dollar, build your first thing. You know what I mean? Write the code. There's no excuse to not have an MVP, particularly in a world of LLMs and like all the things or website oh, and all right. these other things today. Like, it's just, it's such a huge negative signal if you don't actually have real data points of things that live. And it's also like, it creates a huge gravity if you do have those things and immediately separates you from 90% of the folks who are just talking. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. It's so easy to feel like you're being busy when you're like doing, reading research reports or whatever, yeah. you know, or doing market research or talking and like, yeah, those things are like anecdotally useful, but it's just, it's, it, it feels busy it feels busy and it's fucking not. Yeah. It's very easy. You can occupy every day, every hour actually implementing something is a, is a totally different 100%. game. So last question, as you know, the podcast is called How I Became and we've traveled through a bunch of different parts of your story, where you are, where you want to go. And I'm curious if you were to name your episode of How I Became, what would you call it? Yeah. All my answers are so corny here. <laughs> the cornier, the better. The, the thing that came to mind, the thing that came to mind is I now have a three and a half year old girl. I have a six month son. Yeah. I'm trying to be, and like for a long time, I was very monolithic in that my work was my life and vice versa. And so now I'm trying to be much more like, you know, how I became whole, how I became well-rounded, whatever that thing is. But like, yeah, something in that vein of just being more than uh, the CEO of Coho is the current chapter of my life. I, I love that. And congrats on the little one. Very cute little girl and boy. I'm sure that adds a lot more busyness and late nights and early mornings to your day. But that's everything for today. I think everyone should go and set themselves up with Coho. Very easy to do. And that's everything. Daniel, if there's anything else you want to add or share before we uh, wrap it up. This is great. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you so much. Have a good one. How I Became, a Blue Mex podcast, is hosted by Kelly Yafet and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. 
For more How I Became content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bloomx.io to join us on Discord.